Well, hey, good morning. My name is Greg Hampton. I'm one of the pastors here. If we've never met, I would love to meet you and maybe have a coffee with you or meet with you outside of the walls of, of this church building. Um, we are just about halfway through our series called The Church Called Tove. It's, it's based on a book called by the same name, and the subtitle is Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. And I wanted to make sure that we're communicating clearly about this, that, that we aren't doing this because we think that we are all of these things, or that we've achieved all of these things. That the, the point isn't that, hey, we're going through this book that, that is, uh, is page by page describing everything about us. No, the point is, is that some of these things we are. In some ways, our church is very tov, is very good. In other ways, we need to keep on growing. And we need to know what we think maybe God is asking the church to be like so that we know what we're inviting people to. Because it matters if they know that they're coming to a place that's safe for them, that is a place that's going to embrace them and make them a part of the family. And this is true of every church. Every church needs to grow in this way. And so today, the element of tov, of goodness, that we're going to talk about is people first. A people first culture that resists what's called institutional creep. Speaking of people first, how about them fast food joints, right? Oh, yeah, they're like the epitome of people first, right? They are the, the pinnacle. I'm going to give you a list of places, and then I'm going to give you the year that they, that they were uh, founded, and just so that you can kind of see like how long these places have been around, and then I'm going to ask a question. So Arby's has been around since 1964. I don't know why everyone trashes on Arby's. I like Arby's. People, like, give it such a hard time. They've, they've, I like their food. Burger King, 1953. Domino's, 1960. Dunkin' Donuts, 1950. KFC, 1930. McDonald's, 1940. Pizza Hut, 1958. Popeye's, 1972. Sonic, 1953. Subway, 1965. Taco Bell, 1954. Wendy's, 1969. And Within five years, they, were, they had many, many store, stores. So now, which one of those restaurants do you think has the highest customer satisfaction in the country? Any guesses? Wendy's. Wendy's? Okay. And which one of those that I listed do you think has the best employee experience in the country? Uh, trick question, none of them. <laughs> none of those places even cracks the top 15. McDonald's, KFC, Wendy's, Dunkin' Donuts, Subway, and Burger King are all listed as the worst food chains to work for in America. Why? Do we think that the people that founded those companies hoped that one day they would be so big that people would consistently have a bad experience working there or going there? Did they hope that the culture that had been created in those environments might leave a bad taste in the mouth of their customers, or that those customers would start being treated like numbers. If you go to the, uh, the McDonald's that's up on 30th and 18th in Rock Island, their sign is so old, it says billions and billions served, but it actually says aliens and aliens, because the B has like been busted out and is just like decayed so much. But 
that speaks to how people, in a way, were treated like numbers. Look at how many people that we have served, we have kept track and counted them. Institutional creep can be illustrated with one question. How many of us feel that if we had a negative experience at any of those restaurants, that our input would have a chance to affect change in that organization? (laughs) Institutional creep is the reason that almost none of us would think that us saying something would change anything. Institutional creep inches us away from relationship with those that we serve and with those that we follow. It turns people into customers and customers into numbers. It turns leaders into managers and pastors into presidents and CEOs. You can find this problem in just about every part of the Bible. An institutional mindset that creeps in so that God confronts kings about it. And he has prophets confront priests about it. Jesus confronts religious leaders about it. We even see it happen with Jesus and his own disciples, that he speaks to them about it. Because with power and position and influence, with numerical or financial growth, institutional creep will want to sneak in. So, let's open our Bibles and see what we might have to learn today. I'm going to be in two different sections. I'm going to be in Matthew 14 and Acts 6. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on the shelf out there. They're blue. On your way home today, you're welcome to take one home with you. And, uh, or if you'd like a digital one, you can download. A lot of Bibles are just free on digital app stores. Matthew is the very first book of what's called the New Testament or the Second Testament. And then it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If you see any of those, you know you're in the right neighborhood. And you're welcome to turn to one or both of those. And then we have a tradition that when we read the scriptures as part of the message, we want to give it our full attention. Uh, One of the ways that we can do that is by standing together um, as we are able. If you prefer to sit, you're welcome to do that. But if you will join me in giving the scriptures your full attention now, let's go ahead and read Matthew 14, starting in verse 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Acts 6, starting verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention and prayer to the ministry of the word. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the scriptures. Pray that we still have them. And I pray that whatever you have for us to learn today, I pray that it would stick, that it would become a part of the framework of our faith, that our faith would become stronger, that we would become more like your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, y'all. You can have a seat. 
All right, so first thing I'm going to say here is that Jesus wasn't going to let the size of his following or the popularity of his ministry let institutional thinking creep into the way that he led or the way that his disciples were expected to care about people. I say this because Jesus, those, those people ended up where they were because of Jesus. They ended up where they were because of the disciples. They ended up where they were because they wanted to be a part of what he was doing. And when they were hungry, Jesus took responsibility for where he had led them. Fast food restaurants have expanded globally. It's not the customer's fault that the company chose to expand. They are responsible for the experience their customers and employees have. Most churches that grow significantly hoped that it would happen, even did things on purpose to try to get it to happen. So when a church grows, it is still our responsibility to care for the people. At 150, at 200 or more, like we did when it was 50 or 75 or 100, it is still our responsibility to care. I think that's the example that we see set by Jesus. He doesn't just feed his disciples. He just doesn't say, hey, you guys are the ones that are closest to me. Oh, you're my 12, you're my 72. I'll, 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 I'll multiply enough bread and fish for you guys. No, he takes responsibility for every man, woman, and child that had followed, that had shown up. And he tells the leaders, his disciples, don't dismiss them. You do something. Do something. You do something. Let's, we can do something. Now, Acts 6 is regularly used as an example of what pastors are supposed to do. Hang with me here, okay? Because I'm about to say something that some of you probably, maybe you disagree with. Maybe you've never heard a pastor say before. But it's in the Bible. It led to growth. And so we assume that it was the best choice that the disciples could make. But all you have to do is turn back in your Bible a few pages and you see places where Jesus was encouraging them to do something that looked different from that. Turn back, you'll find the time where they didn't want the little children to come to Jesus. Turn back, you'll find the time where they didn't want responsibility for feeding the crowds. Turn back a little bit, you'll find the time where they saw someone casting out demons in Jesus' name, but they wanted to tell him to stop because he wasn't part of their group. Turn back, you'll find the time where they wanted to call down fire on a town because they hadn't accepted their message immediately. You turn back, you will find times where Jesus constantly drew them back to the heart of the Father, to the humanity of who people were, and reminded them, that's not their fault. We're the ones leading. Let us care for them the same way we would care for each other. So I'm honestly not sure. First of all, not everything that is in the Bible is prescriptive. This isn't in my notes. When we read the Bible, not everything in it is a prescription that's telling us what to do. A lot of it is describing what happened. When we read certain Psalms and it says, oh, that I could bash the heads of my enemies against that and the other, it is not a prescription of what we're meant to do. It is describing the feelings of what they wanted to happen. 
There's so many things in the Bible that we read and we go, oh, that's prescribing, that's how I should do it. That's not always true. And I think that in this encounter, in Acts 6, it is something that is describing what happened. It doesn't mean that it's the way that we're always required to do that because it pulled those disciples away from caring for people with their own hands. Groups, movements, institutions, as their power and influence grow, they have a way of changing how they treat people. McKnight and Berenger remind us, in order to have a people-first culture, it sounds simple, we have to treat people as people. It's not as simple as it sounds, because as an organization grows, treating people as people becomes more difficult, because it means we have to know their names and their stories. Today we gave you name tags for a reason, because your names matter. You do not have to go to a church of thousands to feel like no one knows your name. You can feel unknown and lonely in a room of 50, 60, 70 people just as easily as a church of 700. Scott McConnell is our first impressions director, and we have agreed. We think it's, we're, we're kind of into the idea. <laughs> we have agreed that we're going to have a name tag Sunday once a month. Why once a month? Why once a month? Because um, I know some of you probably already hate the idea. Some of you love it. Some of you hate it. Maybe you're an introvert. Maybe you're private. Maybe you're new and you don't want anyone to know your name yet and you just happen to show up on a day where we said, hey, here's a name tag. Um, maybe you put together the perfect outfit this morning and you, this name tag just does not fit the motif. It does not fit the look. You matched everything and then we gave you a green name tag. <laughs> I get it. But anonymity is an institutional element. And a family knows each other's names. And so once a month, and, and you ready for this part? One random Sunday a month <laughs> of Scott's choosing, I won't even know until he tells me, one Sunday a month, we are going to hand out name tags at the door. <laughs> oh, the second element of being people first is to enfold others into the community, which means that we don't just learn names, we learn each other's stories. This one means a lot to me because of experiences that I've had. I worked at a church in Georgia between 2007 and 2010, uh, we were just about 45 minutes outside of downtown Atlanta. Brennan was just little, and Liam was actually born in Georgia. And because it was a church plant, and because we didn't have our own building, the leadership team didn't really see each other all that often. And that was okay for them, because they all already knew each other. 
They were all from there. They had all either been led to the Lord or discipled by the senior pastor that we were working with and for. 18 months in, I still felt like a stranger. I didn't feel like any of them knew me. So I told my pastor, we had the idea that every staff meeting we would grill someone. Everyone on the team would ask one person a question. So if we had 12 people in the room, there'd be 11 questions for that one person. Every time we had that all-staff meeting, this would happen. A different person would get grilled. We did it, and it went great. We got through everyone on the team. I learned a ton about all of them, and then we moved on. But they never grilled me. I was the one that brought it up, but then I was never asked any questions. Hmm. Brene Brown says, connection is the energy that exists between people when they feel seen, heard, and valued. When they can give and receive without judgment, when they derive sustenance and strength from the relationship. She's talking about feeling known. Guys, there can be a pretty big difference between people thinking they know you and you feeling known. I'll say it again. There can be a big difference between people thinking they know you and you feeling known. Those are not always the same thing. And our stories have something to do with that. Some of you have probably literally been in a conversation with me where mid-conversation I'll say, oh, hey, do you know so-and-so? And maybe I'll even introduce you to them. And then I'll tell you something about them. And then I'll say, oh, I think you guys have this in common. And then I'll hang around for like 30 seconds and be like, hey, I'm going to let you guys keep talking. Because caring about names, knowing stories, helps us enfold each other into a connected community. It helps us develop a people-first culture. This is also how we resist turning people into numbers, right? So I've been a pastor for, depends on what you count, I guess, Um, for 22, 23 years in some way I've I've been a pastor. And we've, we've had this church for coming up on, it'll be 10 years in January. And I've been asked many times by people, so how many giving units does your church have? How many giving units does your church have? What, what they're asking is, how many separate households in your church give money? Because for them, it is some kind of measurement of the health of the congregation. And my answer is always, yeah, I don't really know. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I can tell you whether I think that our giving is healthy right now or not, but I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Sometimes their reply this has happened more than once. Well, you can only improve what you're willing to measure. Now, I care about our budget, all right? I, I care if people are giving. I care that if God has asked you to give something, that you follow God. That's important. But I didn't become a pastor so I could measure how much any of you give. 
I did not become a pastor to improve the percentage of giving units in a congregation. I became a pastor so that people would know how much they're loved. You are not giving units. Uh, We will never have a banquet for the top givers of our congregation. I'm very sorry. (laughs) And who I spend time with will never be based on how much you gave to this congregation. People are people, not numbers. When we humanize each other, when we treat people as people, when we know each other's names and stories, what happens is we see the image of God in each other. We are reminded again that we are family, that we are siblings. McKnight and Berenger says that if we treat someone less, like less than family, we're doing it wrong. Because the most common word in the New Testament for Christian believers, by far, is not church. It is siblings or brothers and sisters. I said it last week. Now, that doesn't mean that a family always gets along. It doesn't mean that we all believe the same things. It does not mean that we agree about everything. That is not the point. It does mean that we love each other Actively because we believe in Jesus. We can generically love anyone. You heard? We can generically love anyone. Oh, I love the people of fill-in-the-blank region. We can love anyone generically, regardless of who they are, but to love who someone is, to know their name, their story, and to love them specifically that is family. Years ago, I was, I was talking to a mother after a daughter had come out as lesbian, and the mom was accepting, but she was clumsy in how she would say it. She'd say, Greg, I love my daughter. I don't care if she's a lesbian. And I told her, but she wants you to care. She wants your love for her to include caring about who she says she is. That is an active love. That is taking a love that we so often in Christianity make generic and we make it specific. People don't want to be loved generically. They want to be known and loved specifically. None of this comes easy. And that's why, just like last week, We got to the end, and we said, and the only way we can do this is by the Holy Spirit. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to see each other the way Jesus sees us, to feel for each other the way Jesus feels for us, to embrace each other as family the way we are embraced by him. Now, None of this is really sounding like it's specifically about the leadership of a church and how the leadership of a church specifically is at fault for institutional creep. So let me me keep going here a little bit. Part of the reason is because I want to be kind to pastors as well because pastors are people too. Pastors and leaders are meant to be in the community, part 
of the community and as far away from a pedestal as possible. In order to do that, the people and pastors of a congregation, they all need to treat the church like a family, all of them, instead of like a business. All of them, all of them, all of us need to treat a church like family and not like a business. So much of the last 40 years of church development in the United States of America has focused on teaching church leaders how to act more like business leaders and how to lead their churches like businesses. Eugene Peterson, he's every, every, favorite, every pastor's favorite pastor, but they, don't, they wouldn't have ever wanted to pastor his church, and I'll tell you why. Eugene, Pat, Eugene Peterson has a ton of books about what it means to be a pastor, what it means to, to lead a church, to care about a community, the theology of what it means to pastor. And so, so many pastors lean on his books as they're trying to do these great, incredible things, which often include trying to grow as big as they possibly can. But in 30 years, Eugene's church was never bigger than 300 people. So many of us have been tempted into wanting Eugene's message with a different result. Eugene said, I was watching both the church and my vocation as a pastor in it being relentlessly diminished and corrupted by being redefined in terms of running an ecclesiastical business. The ink on my ordination papers wasn't even dry before I was being told by experts, so-called, in the field of church that my main task was to run a church after the manner of my brother and sister Christians who run service stations or grocery stores or corporations or banks, hospitals, and financial services. Many of them wrote books and gave lectures on how to do this. This is the Americanization of congregation. It means turning each congregation into a market for religious consumers, an ecclesiastical business run along the lines of advertising techniques, organizational flowcharts, and energized by impressive motivational rhetoric. Eugene was a pastor that pushed back against the industrialization of church. He saw church leaders being lured and drawn into a leadership culture that was beginning to forget that we are pastors. Listen. For me, I'll speak for myself, the very sad reality is that that culture has become dominant over the last 40 years. Church leaders were convinced that they had to treat their churches like businesses. And after 40 years of being treated like customers, so many people that have gone to churches have learned to be consumers. To subconsciously, or even not so subconsciously, treat the church community that is meant to be a family like it is a business, like it is a restaurant, like it is something that can be consumed, not something that is lived. But a Tove church has a culture where all the people, the pastors and the people, 
remember to treat each other as equals. Like people, like brothers and sisters created in the image of God that are meant to be there for each other. So here's my advice. Show up early. Stay late. Jump into a community table whenever you can. Go to the men's morning gathering for coffee. Go to the women's gathering once a month if you, if you can manage. Be in a service together and learn each other's names as often as possible. Let the Holy Spirit literally show you how the Scriptures tell us that because of Jesus, we are already connected to each other. It is us that so often turn something that is a family into something less than. Look around. Go ahead. Look around. Every person in this room has a name. Every person in this story, in this room has a story. And everyone in this room is loved by Jesus the exact same way you hope to feel loved by Jesus. And maybe you get to be part of them feeling loved by Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you help us to love like you loved, that we would not avoid putting our hands to the work that causes us to have to be with each other. That in the moments where we say, oh, we should send them home so they can get something to eat, that we would hear you say, well, why don't you feed them? And that instead of going, well, that's not possible, that we would then expect for you to do something miraculous that enables it. Every church, God, in America and the whole world needs for you to do something miraculous so that we as so often people that began as strangers would somehow become feeling like we are family. That seeing each other would not feel like, oh, I should do that. To, I want to see them. Let your Holy Spirit help us know the balance of that. Let us never move into an area of shaming people into any of this. Let your Holy Spirit help us to see with your eyes, to embrace each other as you would embrace. Amen.